it's my pleasure to welcome Fergus Green to the inaugural Little Red podcast. Uh, Good morning, Grant. Welcome to uh, welcome back to Melbourne. I should I should say. Thank you very much. Now, Fergus, my um, recurring question, I guess, is is going to be um, what um, made you a China nerd in the first place? What attracted you to China? Yeah, well, I was faced with a choice when I started high school in Year Seven. This was uh, many years ago now between learning Chinese, French or Indonesian. And to me, Chinese just looked interesting. And, um, you know, I could see and my parents were saying that, you know, China's going to become more and more important. Um, you know, French is a bit of a waste of time for Australians. So, so you know, maybe go, go for Chinese. And I thought, yeah, it looked like an interesting challenge. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made. It opened lots of doors, gave me great opportunities to, tra- to travel to China many times. And uh, it's come back... Chinese and China has come back at different points throughout my, my career, which has been somewhat varied, and there's always been a, a China angle to the things I've done. So, yeah. yeah. And for those of you who weren't at Fergus's talk last night, um, what are you currently doing? So I'm currently doing a PhD, um, but actually the, the talk that I gave was related to some work that I've done over the last 18 months or so, primarily in my previous job, which was at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics. And when I was uh, at the Grantham Institute for almost two years, I worked closely with Professor Nicholas Stern, and one of the main areas of work that we focused on in that period was on economic change in China and climate and energy policy in China and how they're affecting China's greenhouse gas emissions. So that body of work during my time at Grantham continued somewhat into my into my PhD and we've basically produced a series of papers on, on, on those issues. Yeah. Now, Nicholas Stern's a reasonably famous guy. How did you come to work for Nicholas? Well, I was quite lucky actually with my timing. So I started my career as a lawyer in Australia and I worked on climate change, energy, water and environmental regulation, but especially climate change law and Australia's emissions trading scheme over the period 2009 to 2012 when it was all... Uh, when it was all happening, um, policy debates on, on emissions trading. So that's sort of where I cut my teeth. And then I went to the UK. I did a master's at the LSE, London School of Economics. And uh, when I finished my master's, I was looking to work for a little bit before I started my PhD. And a job came up at the Grantham Research Institute, which is mostly academics doing climate change economics and, and a few other issues, but mainly economics. But they have a small policy team where you don't need it to have got a PhD to, to, to work in the policy team. They tend to recruit people who have strong academic background but also have worked in policy. Um, so I applied for a job which was partly working in the policy team and partly as Nick Stern's research advisor. It was sort of a 50-50 split in the role. And that job came up just a couple of months after I finished my master's and I applied for it and, and got it. So yeah. started a couple of months later. Well, well, well done. That's yeah, it was a, kind of been easy. It was a great, uh, amazing opportunity yeah. and um, to, to work, work closely with him yeah. and in such an interesting period for inter- international climate policy well, and, indeed, yeah. and domestic policy in, in places like China. So mm. yeah, very lucky. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to be at the talk last night. Um, could you share sort of the take-home points from your paper um, with Professor Stern uh, with the listeners? Sure. So the research we did, which, uh, which is contained in the paper, focused on really three areas. One, we looked at how wider changes in China's economy 
affect uh, have been affecting energy demand growth in China. That's obviously a major driver of emissions. Uh, we also look secondly at changes in government policy and how they're affecting the energy supply mix, which is what we tend to focus on when we think of climate policy. And then thirdly, we, we looked at the implications of the changes both on energy demand and energy supply. So w- what's, what's actually happened to coal consumption and energy consumption more broadly over the last few years and looking forward as to where we think uh, the energy sector might evolve and the implications for China's emissions and, and its efforts on climate change more broadly. Okay. So I think a lot of the people in the audience last night, we, I mean, if you've been working on China's economy for a while, you're used to the numbers forever tracking upwards, Yes. Uh, including things like greenhouse emissions. And I think one of the surprising things from your talk last night is that China's greenhouse emissions and China's coal consumption both fell in 2015. That's right. That's exactly right. And I think this is a, a turnaround that's starting to become more well-known, but uh, takes a lot of people by surprise, mm-hmm. given that we're used to, for, for you know, many years, probably more than a decade now, hearing stories of the relentless rise in China's coal consumption and greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. And what our paper and our broader body of work has been really trying to do is expose how, this is, how much this has changed in a very short period, just a few years. If you look back at uh, the period 2000 is roughly 2012-13, China's emissions and coal consumption grew very, very strongly. And a lot of the projections that were made about China's future emissions really extrapolated forward from that and expected continued high projections of, of, uh, projections of continued emissions growth long into the future. And so this turnaround has actually taken a lot of people by surprise. And uh, you know, perhaps we can talk about some of, the, some of the drivers for that change. Yeah, no, I mean, it really interests me in that the Chinese government's own target for meeting or sort of getting to a point where consumption um, and greenhouse emissions peaked was yep. 2030. That's right. So that's a full 14 years off, and, yep. and yet they've reached that uh, that goal already. Well, they may have. So emissions did fall last year, mm. but that doesn't necessarily mean emissions have peaked. Yes. Um, so coal consumption, I'm pretty confident, and we're pretty confident, has peaked. Mm. But oil consumption, gas consumption is still growing. Yeah. And so it's sort of a, a race between how fast coal consumption could fall and how much you can contain um, the growth in oil and gas as to whether emissions go up a little bit or continue to go down. So mm-hmm. it is possible that emissions mm-hmm. peaked in 2014. Um, this is carbon. We're really just focusing on carbon dioxide emissions in the energy sector, which is the main component of Chinese greenhouse gas emissions. They may, they may have peaked, but they may also go up a little bit in future. Yeah. Um, but... We think one way or another, emissions, if they do grow, will grow very, very moderately. And basically, the emissions curve in over the next five or ten years is going to be pretty flat. Mm. And it's going to peak, emissions are going to peak at some point in the next decade if they haven't peaked already. Mm. So, still beating um, by probably at least five years the 2030 target. Yeah. 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 And a large part of this change seems to be the much announced change from China. China changing to a consumption-driven economy, um, which uh, on the surface, there, there are, and you've touched on that with the rise in consumption of oil, one thing that really concerns me um, when I visited China a couple of years ago, a, a very good friend of mine who's a mid-ranking bureaucrat, and not, not on a very big salary, um, picked me up at the bus station um, in his car, even though he only lived two blocks away. Right. Um, and my hotel was just across the road, but he had to drive there in a car. Yeah. And uh, once he bought a car, I thought, goodness me, if he can buy one um, pretty well, you know, 
a large number of people in China are going to be buying cars. Yep. Is that part of the reason why things won't drop steeply? It is. You've, you've hit upon, I think, one of the big sources of growing emissions and one of the big risks to sort of future, uh, a kind of what we call a deep decarbonisation scenario. Yep. One of the risks to uh, a scenario where China, after it peaks its emissions, can reduce rapidly. I think growth in transport emissions is is a factor that's pushing against that. And the extent to which uh, government policy and social attitudes around driving and urban planning and whole range of factors can affect future transport emissions will be a big factor in whether we have this sort of flat emission scenario uh, versus whether we have a deep decarbonisation scenario. But I think, uh, so, so you're absolutely right, to, and you've hit upon, as I say, one of, the, one of the risks, but one of the biggest things that's pushing emissions down is the, the demand from energy-intensive industries, which have been a major source of energy demand growth in China. And most of that demand has been supplied by coal-fired power historically. So the big source of the huge boom in greenhouse gas emissions in China between 2000 and 2013 was the extraordinary expansion of heavy industries, things like steel, cement and aluminium. China went from being a relatively small producer of those those, uh, basic materials to producing over 50% of the world's uh, steel um, aluminium and cement mm. in just a, in around a decade. Yeah, I think one of the presenters came up with an amazing stat that in the years 2012 and 2013, China produced more cement than America produced in the whole of the 20th century. That's correct. Yep. Which is an amazing amount of paving going on. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, that, that's when I show that slide, it usually gets... Uh, some gasps, yes. uh, understandably. So uh, this is this is a statistic that's been going around for a while, and there's been some analysis which shows, yeah, it's, a, it's about right. So um, extraordinary amount of output um, of these basic basic uh, materials, and because they use so much energy, and so much of that energy was supplied by expansions in coal-fired power, this was a huge driver of the emissions growth. And one of the key reasons for the turnaround in coal consumption and emissions is that that growth in basic materials production has really tapered off and in some cases those sectors are actually shrinking now. And the reason, the, the main reasons for that, I mean, it's partly about the slowing construction and infrastructure growth in China because they had a huge build-out over the last decade and, and partly that's just naturally reached a saturation point mm. where there just isn't as much sort of development need, I suppose you could say, for, for a lot of those projects. But the other reason is that after the global financial crisis, when China's exports really crashed because demand dried up in in their uh, countries to which they export, the government uh, really pump-primed the Chinese economy with really loosened credit and basically strongly encouraged investment as stimulus to maintain jobs and maintain economic growth. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that went into infrastructure projects and additional industrial production in high, which, which in hindsight has revealed, and many would have said at the time, a lot of which was unnecessary and has, mm. has been wasted. And you've had a huge expansion in some of those you know, basic materials uh, and in things like buildings and mm. so on, which has led to a lot of excess capacity. Mm. And uh, a lot of that was financed by debt. So you now have a problem in China of too much supply of a lot of these materials and buildings and so on. And uh, low prices for steel, cement, uh, aluminium, 
so there's poor returns and the, uh, problems in servicing all of the debt that was used to finance it. So that's combined. They're the reasons why heavy industry is uh, is, is declining in, in China or, or grow, growing very slowly. Uh, and that has dramatically reduced the uh, growth in energy demand. And so that puts a lot less pressure on on the energy supply mix needing to be low carbon because you've actually got a relatively flat energy energy demand. Now, um, leading into my question, I guess, about what approaches the government has been taking directly to reduce greenhouse gases, one thing that always amused me um, out in the countryside is when you talk to Irrigation Bureau officials, uh, when they talked about building their infrastructure, building canals and so forth, they made a point of uh, not building them terribly well so that in five years, in ten years' time, they would have to come back and rebuild the same canal yeah. and thus enjoy the kickbacks that come with a large infrastructure right, project. Right, And they referred to it as shaving. Okay. So uh, I wonder if... Uh, well, firstly, what sort of um, initiatives is the Chinese government taking to improve energy efficiency? And is part of that improving the quality of its infrastructure build? Mm, yeah. I think certainly the direction of central government policy is to go beyond this sort of crude quantitative approach of prioritising GDP growth at all costs, which leads to precisely the kinds of gaming and scheming that, that you're talking about, where you just build things and tear things down and it's a big hit to growth, but it's obviously not environmentally sustainable and also not good, good use of economic resources. And so the push from the central government is very much towards what, what they would call better quality economic growth. So don't worry so much about needing double-digit GDP figures accept a lower level of GDP growth, but focus more on the quality of that growth. And that the quality dimension uh, really is sort of an umbrella for a number of different things. It's about a shift away from investment focused on infrastructure and heavy industry, more towards growing the consumer economy and particularly growing services like healthcare and education and so on. And it's also about, uh, and that's tied up with reducing inequalities. So that's another dimension of quality, if you like. And of course, the, the final dimension is in improvement in the environment. And for them, that's probably more about reducing local air pollution, water pollution, food safety and things like that. That's yeah. uh, a huge issue in China. Yeah. Enormous public concern about environmental quality and its impact on public health. So, and that so helps the climate agenda. Is, so in a way, that this was one, my next question, I guess, is that in a way, are the Chinese um, citizens on board with these ambitious targets for reducing greenhouse gases? Well, they are, but they, they're on board with them, I think, largely for what we in the climate industry tend to call co-benefits, yes. which is benefits other than uh, reduced green, greenhouse gas emissions or benefits other than um, mitigating climate change itself. So reduction in air pollution. Reduction in air pollution, uh, improved energy security, yeah. energy efficiency, which you, you mentioned before, um, so saving energy, saving money. So there's all kinds of benefits, particularly in a country like China where pollution is so bad and there are so many other development opportunities with a clean economy, that, that they're the main drivers of things that also happen to reduce greenhouse gases. So in a way... Climate change mitigation is the co-benefit yeah. of other things in China. Yeah. But that's, a, that's generally a good thing because uh, those things are more prominent and the government can see that actually, well, we can tackle climate change in a way that, that brings a whole host of local benefits and local benefits that are salient and that people care about. Mm -hmm. um, so it's actually a, a clever strategy and it's paying dividends mm -hmm. as we've seen with reduction in coal consumption and emissions last year. Yeah, so what, I guess one of the most dismaying things in the West is that um, 
in terms of politics, there's been, I guess, a politicisation of action on climate change in that yeah. um, some people on the conservative side of politics take it as a badge of honour that yeah. they don't believe in climate change yeah. or they're sceptical, as yeah. they call it, about yeah. climate change. Is there any chance that sort of politicisation could emerge in China? Because although it's one party, it's one party many factions. Mm. Uh, I don't see much chance of that happening, yeah. to be honest. And, yeah. and it's partly because because of the one-party state mm. and the fact that uh, official policy is to accept the science of climate change. And China actually has very good climate change scientists mm. who, um, who input into IPCC, the international climate process, uh, climate science process, um, and that have a, a route into the central government in terms of advising them on climate change impacts in China, which, which are already occurring and, and will be extremely severe if the world Indeed. fails to mitigate. So, so they have a pretty strong climate science base and uh, my understanding of public opinion in, in China is that, um, I mean, there's, there's, some, there's a lot of people who don't even know about climate change, but there is quite high acceptance of, of climate change, um, certainly in, in the eastern cities, I, I think. Mm. Um, and so it's not really a problem that they have there. And when you factor in that, that sort of underlying strong scientific base with the fact that the environment, sort of in quotes generally, is such an important issue to people in China, they just kind of intuitively get mm. that climate change is a part of, yeah. part of that. Or, or even if they don't, mm. because they're so concerned about air pollution and other things, and that's driving a shift away from coal anyway. So I don't see that as being a risk in China. Yeah. And is, is part of the support related to the fact that China has become a leader in renewables, a leader in wind and solar in particular? I'm not sure, you know, because I think a lot of the projects have been relatively sort of large industrial projects. They haven't had the same take up in solar PV as you've seen, for example, in Australia. And I think mm. they've had problems with interconnectors and, and sort of a, on the technical side yeah. and rolling out solar PV to some extent. So I suspect that's probably not actually one of the main drivers in China. Um, a friend of mine in the UK is working on a project on sort of uh, relatively grassroots innovation in, in sustainability innovation in China and they're looking at things like solar hot water heaters which have actually been taken up in quite large yes, measure. Notably, in um, China as well. Yeah, yeah. And e-bikes, electric mm. bikes, yep. which the government doesn't like, but have been very popular. <laughs> but people love them. Yeah, so there, there are actually some cases of more grassroots innovation, yes. but interestingly, sort of solar PV has not been a big factor so far yeah, uh, at, the, at, the, at the residential scale. Yeah, yeah. no, it, yeah. Is, it is quite surprising to, uh, to see that. And I guess we hear that China is, tri is trialling a carbon trading scheme, but I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about what sort of carbon trading scheme it is. Mm. I mean, is it sort of a welfareist um, system? Is it sort of based on market mechanisms, or is it more, I guess, illiberal in its uh, approach? What, how would you characterise it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So a bit of context, so China's had seven pilot emissions trading schemes operating in various cities and provinces mm. since, I think, 2013. And these have been very much policy experiments. They picked, deliberately picked cities and, and provinces with quite different economic characteristics. The rules for all of those schemes were deliberately different, so they were trialling different things. They're, they're ongoing, and the government is, uh, has committed to establishing a national scheme by 2017. 
the out, it, it's still pretty early stages. A lot of the design features of those, that national scheme have not been bettered down and there are all sorts of transitional issues between rolling the, the, trial, the pilot schemes into a national scheme. In terms of how you would characterise it, I mean, I'll make a couple of general points. First is I think we should strongly moderate our expectations about what emissions trading can achieve in China. In where other countries and regions have experimented with emissions trading, the results have been pretty poor and for reasons that are quite understandable. It's very difficult to design emissions trading schemes well and it's extremely difficult to implement them well uh, and those problems are going to be multiplied by orders of magnitude in China. A lot of the academic studies that have been done sort of looking at uh, sort of ex-ante analyses, looking forward at what the barriers might be, a lot of the initial assessments of the, the pilot schemes and some expert survey evidence have revealed a lot of challenges, political, institutional, technical, in China about um, designing and implementing emissions trading scheme, uh, schemes and, and the national one. So I think that they will, won't be able to do a huge amount in terms of reducing emissions because of these various barriers. Mm. Um, what it may do is support the wider efforts to reduce emissions for a few reasons. So sort of indirectly, for example, it might help improve um, facility levels, so like factory level emissions um, monitoring and reporting because you need those systems in place for emissions trading to, to work well. And so you might have this sort of improvement in capacity awareness. to measure yeah. and, in, and, and, and similarly, as I said, improvements in awareness about yeah. opportunities to cut emissions. Mm. And you might find that um, I think the scheme in China is going to be oriented towards... Uh, reducing emissions from the, the most inefficient industries towards industry benchmarks. Mm -hmm. So it might help with things like energy efficiency in, in industry in, in a more substantive sense. But I think it's going to be a fairly marginal tool. Mm. Um, and I think we shouldn't have too high expectations about what could be achieved with this very complex, um, you know, market-oriented governance scheme, which, uh, which even advanced you know, regulatory, you know, liberal mm. democracies have struggled yeah. with. Yes, yeah. which, which kind of leads on to my next question now, and it's something that came up in a few of the talks after yours. Uh, there was mention that China has a new uh, environmental law which is much more stringent than the previous one, yeah. but that this law won't apply to Chinese companies operating overseas, yeah. and that thus there was a danger of, of carbon leakage. I wonder what your take was on that. Yeah, this is an interesting one, and I think this is an area to watch in the future. Uh, I think there is some risk of that, but it shouldn't be overstated. So, of course, China's laws, like in any country, only apply domestically. But the Chinese, uh, Chinese government and Chinese companies are major financiers of, of infrastructure development in other countries. It's the very large originator of foreign direct investment. And now you also have these new multilateral institutions that China's heavily involved in. So the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank... The, the New Development Bank, which is the BRICS-led bank, mm. and, uh, and this One Belt, One Road initiative, which is about China financing infrastructure development in, in its region. And in these cases, there's a lot of uh, finance that's going towards energy and, and other roads and other infrastructure that is relatively high carbon. Mm. So this is, this is one area to watch. But I think one, one thing that's worth, worth highlighting in terms of where the international community could play a role here is that Whilst China's domestic regulations obviously won't apply in these foreign countries, where, where progress can be made is on climate finance. So you can sort of regulate or apply standards to particularly public financial flows so that 
um, for example, finance that's being allocated towards energy development, uh, there could be restrictions on perhaps financing coal or certain kinds of uh, energy developments and, and the financial flows could be even more positively biased towards financing renewable energy or, and low carbon development more generally. There's a big push for the, uh, among sort of climate policy people for the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank to have financing standards that are relatively green and certainly there have been noises in, in that direction. So this is a space to watch but we shouldn't think that the international community is impotent in its ability to affect the the direction of financial flows um, from China and it's largely through public finance that it can do that. Mm, yeah, interesting. Mm. Another thing I remember from your graphs last night is that uh, in your graphs it wasn't just renewables, it was renewables and nuclear. Yeah. Um, what's the split and, and how is that changing over time? Is, is China still going um, very hard on nuclear? It is, yeah. I mean, China sees both renewable energy, uh, well, particularly wind and solar, and nuclear power mm. as areas where it can be a major global um, player. So not only fin- not only supplying energy zero carbon energy domestically, mm. but also developing export industries. And it's already a very successful solar uh, exporter and, and wind wind equipment exporter, uh, and and it's targeting nu- nuclear development as well. So it sees this as areas where it can be innovative, where it can sort of move up the global value chain and be, be a significant exporter as well as building domestic industries. And so it is uh, deploying very large amounts of nuclear power and it's got a big pipeline of nuclear projects. Uh, they reviewed their processes a lot after the Fukushima incident and that slowed development a little bit, um, uh, but that's now kind of picking up again. And so they're rolling out nuclear uh, at a pretty high speed as well as big developments in hydro, wind and solar. Mm. So one of you, uh, one of your conclusions that you just mentioned was that uh, China's emissions were likely to plateau and, yep. and stay largely flat for the next five to ten years. Uh, the deep decarbonisation scenario, what conditions would it take for that to unfold in China? Yeah, that's a good question. I think essentially for a deep decarbonisation scenario, we need some fairly major institutional reforms. A big area for reform that would help with its sort of deeper decarbonisation is around is fiscal policy. So this is something that we've written a little bit about in other papers, uh, tax reform, which is, which is a wider agenda but has a strong resource and environment and climate dimension. Essentially, fossil fuels, and particularly coal, are pervasively undertaxed in China. And that's not just for reasons of carbon but also for reasons of air pollution and those externalities. There's low um, sort of value-added and resource rent tax. So basically, uh, fossil fuel resources and fossil fuel production and consumption are really undertaxed and they're actually subsidised. So removing the explicit subsidies and increasing the taxes on fossil fuels would be one area of policy that would really assist with a deep decarbonisation scenario. And that's for two reasons. One is you have the direct effect of the of the increased tax, the increase on prices, which will affect both um, producer decisions and if it's passed through to consumers, consumer decisions. So that's how carbon taxes work in the first instance. But it would also raise quite a bit of government revenue, which can be used to support a wider decarbonisation agenda. And and two things in particular. One, it could be used to, to continue to support um, innovation, both early stage innovation in uh, clean technologies and also the deployment of, uh, of low carbon energy as they've already been supporting solar and wind and so on. 
so that the revenues can support that. And they can also assist with a big transition that needs to take place in China and that's beginning away from um, industries like coal and, and steel. And the government is, as I said, facing this huge problem where there's a lot of excess capacity. Um, there are far too many people employed in these industries which are inefficient and uh, a lot of loss-making companies. So they need to, uh, need to basically support a transition away from these dirty industries. And, you know, some of the t money that can be raised from a carbon tax can be directed towards supporting um, individuals and companies and communities in that transition. So a carbon tax would be one, or, or, or I should say a, a wider sort of coal tax, not just for carbon, would be a very effective measure. I think something like that would be very important for a deep decarbonisation scenario. But there's other things too, things like stronger uh, emissions uh, sorry, stronger energy efficiency standards in areas where we might see some emissions growth, like, like transport, where we mentioned, uh, and uh, appliances and, and buildings. Now, China actually does have some fairly strong standards there, but the challenge is often in enforcement. enforcement. Um, so if, the, if, if the, the environment department can be boosted and enforcement and inspection can be really prioritised, and there are signals that it, that it will be, mm. then we might see stronger enforcement of a lot of those standards. But that would also be absolutely essential for, um, for decarbonising in a deep way. And there are some other areas too, but they're some of the key ones. Indeed. And as long as the automobile industry is a pillar industry, as it is currently designated, then that will be um, I think quite difficult to address. Well, if I can just briefly say on that, I mean, the, the government is talking a lot, particularly in the context of the 13 five-year plan, about what it calls new energy vehicles, which is mm. sort of a major strategic industry. So the government is trying to push them towards uh, hybrid vehicles and electric vehicles. Okay. It's a very complex area of policy because you essentially need to change the infrastructure as well as yeah. changing the manufacturing. You've got to deal with the demand side and the supply side. So it's complex and it's an area that the government has struggled with in the past, but it's... Not, not just the Chinese government. Not just the Chinese government, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, the fact that there's such a high level of policy priority on that mm -hmm. um, and as part of a sort of a broader urban sustainability and pollution reduction agenda there is a, a strong push towards electric and hybrid vehicles. So it'll be very interesting to see how that will play out over the next few years. But it's one area where you could see quite a big transformation. Well, in, in many ways, because of the way China does infrastructure. I mean, in Australia, you, you, you know, if you buy a Tesla, you're, you're very circumscribed yeah. where, you, where you drive it these days. Yeah. Um, but in China, I can imagine if they rolled it out, they, they could roll it out quite quickly. They could, And, and yeah. make the uptake possible. That's right, that's right. So there are big challenges in China, but it's also a place where you could actually conceivably see them getting it right. Mm. Um, so, yeah, watch that space. Yeah, no, yeah. it's interesting to see. And speaking of watch that space, what, what next for you? Well, I'm currently doing my PhD um, at the London School of Economics, and I'm still doing um, some, some ongoing work on, on China, but um, the focus of my research is really on this question of structural transition. I touched before on, on the, uh, the coal and steel transition in China. Now, obviously, as the world decarbonises, we're going to need to transition out of industries like, like coal. Coal is the front line, really, and we're already seeing um, transitions occurring away from coal. There's a needed transition in Australia and in other countries with a big coal industry. So my PhD is looking at how governments should really go about this, um, this transition on climate change and more broadly in terms of major economic reform. How should we deal with the losers of reform, both on the corporate side and households and communities? How should we... How should we do transition? Do people have entitlements to compensation and assistance? 
when and under what conditions. So it's, it's quite normative and will have um, some applications to ongoing debates like the coal transition uh, in Australia and, and places like China. So that's the focus of my work for the next few years. Great. Yeah. And if our listeners want to find you, uh, where do they find you out there in the, uh, the interwebs? Uh, sure. They, so I'm on Twitter. Well, I've been a little bit inactive lately, but I'm on Twitter at Fergus Green. Uh, and I, you can email me at r.f.green at lse.ac.uk. Um, but yeah, Twitter um, is probably the best place to, to find me initially or feel free to send me an email. Great. Well, you've obviously uh, got a plane to catch, so I'd, I'd better let you go. Okay. You miss the China update in Canberra. Yeah, that's right. That would be ironic. Um, no, well, thanks very much for having me, Graham, and quite an honour to be the first uh, podcast of the, the new series. All the, the best. Yes, it. indeed, the, the very first Little Red podcast. <laughs> and um, it's, it's been a great pleasure. And indeed, that is your camp outside. Okay, <laughs> perfect timing. Thanks, Graham. Cheers, Fergus. Cheers. <laughs>